Welcome to Nearly Numinous. This week we're talking all about Orientalism in pop culture. We're going to look at specifically portrayals of various Eastern cultures throughout contemporary movies and discuss how detrimental these stereotypes can be. And we'll also give a little bit more context about the history of Orientalism and I'm going to nerd out about opera for a minute, much to Jacqueline's dismay. (laughs) (laughs) But just a quick disclaimer before we get into the bulk of the episode, we're going to be talking a lot about racism uh, and especially stereotyping and we're no experts on the subject but we do hope that this at least opens a bit of a dialogue on the topics as always if you have something to add or discuss we would love to hear from you you can send us an email at nearly at gmail.com So the reason we're talking about Orientalism today on our podcast is Orientalism, although it kind of rears its head in a bunch of different aspects, a lot of it tends to be tied to kind of Eastern spiritualities, and especially because a lot of Eastern spiritualities are so intertwined with just general lifestyles. Um, It's not even necessarily like religion versus non-religion debate. So we'll talk a little bit about superstition, things like yoga as well, and we'll talk about kind of instances of Orientalism in those examples, but we'll also kind of get into stuff that's beyond what we traditionally would maybe define as being religious. But honestly, I feel like everyone's used to that now. This is kind of just what we do in every episode, you know? Everything is religion. Yeah, pretty much. Everything in some way can be related to religion. So if you're wondering what Orientalism is... The way that I would describe it is um, it refers to imitations and portrayals of Asian cultures by Westerners, typically for Western consumption, but these portrayals often promote Western superiority. It can be patronizing, exoticizing, fetishizing, and uh, mystifying too. Even if it's subtle and not outwardly poorly meant, othering Eastern cultures like this places them in opposition to us, meaning us in the West, where the East is framed as a sort of quote-unquote exotic other to our Western rationality. Orientalism magnifies this dichotomy between the cultures of the West versus the East, and also homogenizes Eastern and Asian cultures. I think it's important to note that many of the examples we're going to show in today's episode are a little bit older, I guess, so to speak, Um, especially when it comes to like mid 20th century to kind of early 21st century but just because we don't really see as much um, blatant use of white people wearing kimonos and banging gongs uh, doesn't mean that orientalism has disappeared things like yoga and meditation are often exoticized and orientalized because they're considered to have a certain quote-unquote authenticity because of their uniqueness although it's not always necessarily intentionally negatively portraying these traditions it's still often co-opting them into the Western identity because of this exoticization. Yeah, one of the main, I guess, selling points when you're, um, when they, when people have been selling yoga to the West historically is that it's kind of like, you can put it into this box of an exotic spirituality that you can give to Westerners and it can like, you know, open them up to new things it's kind of like different from like the rationality and you know the christianity that they're used to so it's like it's even if yoga is sort of seen as like a big part of our society today it's still sort of like othered and historically it's been 
categorized as other, which is what's made it sort of an attractive subject for many people. So a question that kind of comes up a lot in these sorts of areas is when is it uh, representation um, that promotes and um, shows diversity and when is it Orientalism? And kind of going back to what Rachel was saying earlier, I think it mostly has to do with uh, like what is the underlying message of this representation um, in that does it continue to promote Western superiority and um, in the case of like Asian cultures, Oriental inferiority. Um, so this is this is kind of a debate that uh, comes up often, as we'll talk about a little bit later um, in Harry Potter. Um, there are very few Asian characters. And so at when like the question that often comes up um, on Twitter with fans is um, like, what what is good representation and what is problematic representation? Um, and so we'll talk about that a little bit later. When you talk about Orientalism in an academic setting, you can't not talk about Edward Said. He was one of the people that kind of like sort of defined the current he provided the academic definition for Orientalism. Yeah, exactly. Um, what he said was basically a lot of what we just told you guys, but also um, it's it refers to, like, he said it refers to, like, a general patronizing Western attitude towards um, Middle Eastern, Asian, and North African societies as well. Um, so implicit in this fabrication of, like, what it means to be, like, quote-unquote oriental and oriental culture is the idea that western society is developed rational flexible and ultimately superior so from a historical standpoint there was a really big rise in an obsession with japanese culture and that seemed to kind of be one of the first very obvious instances of orientalism so what happened was in about in the 19th century, kind of the mid to late 19th century, there was a trade agreement between the U.S. Navy and Japanese officials. This was in about 1853. So after this trade agreement, uh, it, what happened is it started. They started to kind of acquire more Japanese cultural items that they would bring back to like Western markets. One of them was the Paris Exposition Universelle and the Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition. Um, they had a quote, uh, it was called a Japanese pavilion, and that was in 1867. And then it continued even more so at the Chicago World Fair in 1893. Uh, this was also quite famously when Swami Vivekananda introduced yoga into the mass market of the West as well. So because it, these world markets really introduced like Japanese and, you know, this kind of Eastern cultural items and fashion, uh, many people started to kind of bring this into their own life. Most commonly, we saw a lot of people starting to wear kimonos, and Monet actually painted his wife, Camille, in traditional Japanese dress and titled it La Japonaise. Uh, if you've never seen it, it's a super, super white lady, and it's a little awkward. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I think you can... I mean, this is probably a whole other topic in and of itself, but I think you can see a lot of, like, fetishizing and exoticizing in, like... um anime culture and fans of anime in the west a lot of like western fans have sort of been called like weeaboos i'm i hope i'm saying that right because i've only seen it said online but they're supposed to be like 
super fans to the point of, you know, like hating Western culture and praising everything that's Japanese. So that's, that's kind of like Orientalism with like the less, less the part about uh, the West being superior, but still kind of like othering and exoticizing and fetishizing this like specific culture to the point of it being, you know, exploited for their own consumption. Mm-hmm. I guess that's another topic to like, like, how do you know when you're appreciating something versus exploiting it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that I think going on back to like Jacqueline's point about the representation versus Orientalism, I think that's more of like a three tiered system of like representation, appreciation slash celebration, as well as like appropriation slash Orientalism. And what about tokenism? Yeah, I think that would fit in there as well, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that could almost be like a subgenre of like all of them. You know what I mean? Because I think there is a certain element of tokenization no matter what. How do you define tokenization? I always think of tokenism like in the context of a movie in that um, like there's like one gay character. There's there's one Asian character, you know, and so. um, And they're there to serve a specific purpose, too, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. to, like, check off maybe a representation box. Um, and they're not the main character. Yeah, usually, like, the best friend or... Yeah. yeah. And also Somehow to provide that kind plot. of, like, intrigue, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, the the gay best friend serves a very specific role in this storyline. But, yeah, it's it's still, like, not great. <laughs> and, like, not have, the like, forefront. a female gay best friend either. That would not be okay. That's starting to happen, though. Is it really? Yeah. So, I've noticed, I've watched, like, two or three movies this year where there's, like, the token lesbian friend. It's very interesting. Okay. I think that's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, again, it's, like, that's where you get into this hard part of, like, tokenization or diversity. Yeah. It's like, oh, they finally changed it from, like, the gay male best friend to the gay female best friend. Yes, it's lesbians' turn to be exploited. Right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. All right. So let's go into some examples, uh, just to provide some more concrete examples of, like, what Orientalism is before we kind of get into our, like, bulk discussion about movies. I know, Jacqueline, you've kind of noticed that there's a lot of Orientalism in children's literature, yeah, so um, in literature, there's this category of ch- like children's books called the Bildungsroman. Um, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly, but so. it's that's essentially you- it. yeah, it's it's a German word. Um, that's a, that's used to describe um, like the there and back again tales, like The Hobbit is a Bildungsroman, um, and so this is quite an obvious way that colonialism and imperialism has shaped Western forms of storytelling. Um, in children's literature and so in these stories there's this mysterious other that functions as the exotic there that the character goes to um and this there is primarily it just serves the purpose of being a literary device um to to promote the character development of the hero who is usually white uh straight cis male um and so there's this idea of place um, just serving this this function of um, like supporting this character in that way. Like the, the idea of place um, 
being just a plot device that is very Eurocentric. But then there's also this idea of how the cultures, how the cultures of this other place also serve like as a plot device. Um, and so this is obviously very Eurocentric and very problematic um, way of understanding land and other people. Um, but looking specifically at culture, because that's what we're talking about today with Orientalism, is that there quickly develops this self-other binary um, in which the other becomes stereotyped and often caricatured versions of their culture. Um, or maybe there'll be like a con conglomeration of a bunch of different cultures. Um, and so that's kind of like how uh, just the idea of like Asian being uh, Japanese, but also like South Korean and also Chinese. Those are all like very different cultures, but in the West often on um, those kind of become um, just kind of grouped together as if they're the same culture. Um, and this is obviously very hypocritical. Um, it's a very hypocritical way of representing others and difference, especially if you consider how in uh, like English literature, how often there's a lot of care given to distinctions between even just Northern and Southern England or in American literature, um, the same thing, the Northern and, and Southern states, how there's a lot of care given in these very like relatively small differences in culture. Um, and so just just the flattening of difference in um, what is conceived of as other is quite common in Orientalism and just in portrayal of other cultures. Yeah, and you mentioned there that uh, oftentimes characters, like especially in movies or something, it's often like, oh, well, they're Asian, but they don't like there's no specifics there like they might not even really be Asian, you know? But what I've noticed even more so is that even when they differentiate, so, like, they'll say, oh, this person's Korean, oftentimes they actually get actors who aren't even Korean to play those characters mm. because yeah. they know, like, to a white audience, they're just going to, like, accept it and be like, yeah, of course that person's Korean. That's what Koreans look like, sure. You know, and, like, not question yeah. it. I'm curious to hear more about uh, your thoughts on Orientalism in the opera stuff, because you mentioned that earlier, and I know absolutely nothing about opera. Yeah, I find it very fascinating. This is something that is pretty well known, especially because when you get to the perspective of like classical music, um, it's not as evident when cross-cultural ideas of music kind of go past but then when you put the visual element to it it's like glaringly obvious and in opera that's the case there's a couple of operas um that are quite poorly orientalist if that makes sense mm -hmm. that wording is kind of complicated but <laughs> mostly by puccini who is an italian composer which i found very interesting he uh, released a couple of or released <laughs> he composed a couple of operas in the kind of early 20th century that were the whole point of them was to be very over-the-top orientalist even to the point where I think a lot of opera fans at the time would call them orientalist opera like it wasn't even veiled at that point which is also a whole interesting point but it would often feature like those rich kind of Asian colors that you typically associate with like china which like the deep reds and the golds so there's two operas specifically that puccini is pretty bad for it, there's madame butterfly and turandot um first off they're always white italians playing uh asian characters 
Um, most of the time, too, they don't even specify, like, which culture of Asian they are. You can kind of, like, pull from the stereotypes that they portray, but not always. Um, Madame Butterfly is pretty explicitly Japanese, though, because it talks a lot about the, like, U.S. soldier coming to Japan. But even, like I said before, in, like, the classical musical music realm, you often don't notice if a piece is necessarily, like, quote-unquote oriental, but when you pull away the visual element from Puccini's operas, you can still hear a lot of those, like, very Asian musical sounds. Um, the most obvious one, which isn't necessarily specific to, like, Asian music, is the gong. That one's, like, kind of the first token thing that they put. Um, and then there's... Oh, geez, I'm, fr- I'm blanking on the name. Jacqueline, do you remember when you play all the ba- black keys? Minor? No, it's uh, it starts with a P. <laughs> Oh, the pentatonic scales. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm not well-versed in music uh, theory. <laughs> anyway, like the um, pentatonic scale. So like when you play all on the black keys, like I even remember growing up and of course at the time you didn't think anything of it because you were a kid and racism's all around you. And, you know, it'd be like, oh, look at me, I'm playing Asian music. And like you'd just play on the black keys, right? And that is definitely very evident in a lot of these operas. But to get more specific into just, like, the cultural portrayals, there's, like, like two things that I really hate about these operas. And the first is just the portrayal of women. And I think we see this across, like, most Orientalist examples, like, that we'll talk about today. But the portrayal of these women is very misogynistic. And there's kind of two, two types of women that you really see in these operas. And both of them are portrayed. One is in Madame Butterfly and the other one is in Turndot. So in Madame Butterfly, there's the woman that's not strong enough. She needs to escape and she needs the white man to come save her. And it's like highly sexualized, highly exoticized kind of woman. The second is the woman in Turndot who is evil. She like hoards all this money. She hoards all this stuff and like they have to destroy her. And... Neither of those are good. Neither of those are good. (laughs) And so the second thing that I don't like about these operas is then how they use these women that are either sexualized or need to be kind of destroyed and, you know, because they're evil. And then they use that to provide justification for the colonialism in those areas. Uh, another, Another famous opera that has these same kind of tropes is The Mikado which is by Arthur Sullivan and W.S. Gilbert. And um, this was written, or this uh, first opened in 1885 in London. And basically the opera is set in Japan and it's supposed to be this kind of satire of British politics um, in the way that they're disguised using Japanese politics so that they can kind of like poke fun at British politics. But uh, what ends up happening is they're just making fun of... uh, the Japanese characters and so what happens um in this well what happens a lot uh even in Harry Potter which is one of my favorite topics um just like in in the uses of uh Asian names with Cho Chang um in the Mikado they're they're quite problematic so the town is Titipu mm-hmm. and um I'll just pull up some of the other ones so I wish that the listeners could see my face at that. <laughs> oh, it gets better. Um, and so there's a character named Nanki Poo, uh, Coco, Poo Ba, Pish Tush, 
So it's just like all these kind of essentially like poop jokes for names um, and these kind of like jokes about like different types of names is quite common in like a lot of representation. Um, the joke about like Cho Chang is essentially it's just like like two just like Asian sounding words like that's not a, apparently Cho Chang isn't even like a name that would happen. Um, I forget if Cho Chang is supposed to be, I think she's supposed to be Chinese. Apparently, like, it's not even a name that would, that would happen. Um, and so it's just, like, very, uh, like, stereotypical, um, uses of words incorrectly just to make fun of. At the beginning, we kind of talked about Orientalism in pop culture being very in-your-face obvious in early examples, I think to start, we can talk about like examples in the early 2000s because to me, those examples are so glaringly obvious. Like they're not even veiled, you know? It's like oh, a person wearing a kimono, them banging a gong because an Asian person walked in, you know? Like it's very in your face, like terrible, you know? Yeah, but the thing is, like, um, so, for example, one of the movies we were talking about was Freaky Friday. I didn't notice that there was anything wrong with that as a kid. And then now when I'm older, it, you know, now that I feel like I know a bit more, it does seem wrong. So if you're not, like, well, if you're not looking for it and you don't know to look for it, it just seems like it's not a problem to you. And oh, if it doesn't affect you, it's not a problem. And even, like, I feel like it's worth it to just say, like, how we got on the topic of Freaky Friday as part of this. It started because I think I sent, like, a Freaky Friday meme to our group chat. I was like, haha, we should talk about Freaky Friday. And then I was like, ah, but it, there's no religion there. And then, like, we got talking about it and we're like, oh, oh no, like, there's all this, like, superstition and, you know, like, crazy examples of like oh well Asians are weird and gonna put their weird magic on you kind of like mm -hmm. messaging in it yeah so like even that's not something that you think about with some of these movies like other uh, if we hadn't have started talking about it I would have never probably thought twice about it and this is the 2003 version I don't know if that stuff was present in the older version right yeah I don't think it was, but maybe I'm just talking out of my ass. So, for anybody who doesn't know what Freaky Friday is, it's basically... What are you doing? Watch it. Just watch it. Yeah, it's... Okay, so <laughs> even though we're critiquing it, it's a good movie. It's got Lindsay Lohan. It's got Jamie Lee Curtis. They fight. They've got a lot of differences. And then um, uh, they switch bodies so that they can experience each other's lives and sort of feel more empathy for each other and then they make up in the end and the way this switch is facilitated in the most recent actually no not the most recent movie they made a musical a couple of years ago i think oh, i heard about <laughs> i saw that on disney plus when i was looking for freaky friday and I, I i heard it's awful yeah i feel like we should watch it i think so too okay um but for the 2003 one uh, the way this switch between them is facilitated is they visit this Chinese restaurant. Um, and yeah, so the owner of the restaurant sees them fighting. She's like this older Chinese lady and her daughter is the one serving them. And basically she comes up to them, um, offers them fortune cookies and is like, here are cookies. And then 
they open the cookies, read the, you know, mystical message in it, there's an earthquake, and they switch bodies. And, um, there are lots of, like... There's also some gong ringing in there, There's lots of, like, banging (laughs) gongs throughout this, lots of, like, mystical Asian-type music, like, to just really drive home the fact that it's this Chinese magic that's, that's, you know, ruining their lives, basically. And then they, they say the next day, oh, like that lady she did something and then they like quote some strange asian voodoo uh and then they go back to the restaurant to confront the women uh gongs banging again of course and i feel like it's important to say though like some weird asian voodoo already that like first off voodoo isn't voodoo haitian yeah Yeah. (laughs) and that's nowhere near asia (laughs) it's just combining things um, yeah. <laughs> just another example of like homogenizing. Like it's not important being correct. It's just important being funny, I guess. Mm-hmm. Funny in quotes. So they go back to the restaurant to confront the woman who changed them. Uh, gongs banging again, of course, and they find out nothing can be done unless they fix it themselves. Um, and then at the end of the movie, when they do fix it themselves, when they like you know come together and make up. Uh, the gongs start banging again to signal the final switcheroo, and right at the end, there's a wedding, and um, the mother attempts to switch the grandpa and the son characters of Lindsay Lohan and Jamie Lee Curtis's family after she sees them having a little fight. So uh, we see, like, she's, you know, back on her bullshit again. <laughs> yeah, I I'm interested, too, in kind of going back to this role that I think we often see in movies that the way that Asian women are portrayed so we've talked about it in kind of like opera style um but I think especially in this kind of movie you see I I you always see like the old woman is kind of this like crazy loose like gonna meddle in people's lives and have fun with it you know kind of trope And then the kind of, like, mom is always portrayed as, like, strict, harsh, rational, whatever, which I find very interesting because you'd assume that, like, there's a natural progression there. How do they get from being very strict and rational to, like, the grandma who meddles in everything and is more, like, you know, magical, so to speak? Yeah. Right? And then, you know, there's always, like, the younger one who's, like, really attractive and just wants to break free out of her parents' strict rules about what it means to be truly, you know, Korean, Chinese, etc. Like, whatever Asian culture they're portraying, or just Asian culture um, as a whole. And then they always want to, you know, break free of this and become more, like, westernized, right? Like, they want to go to a concert with their friends or, like, you know, that kind of, like, BS, frankly, that, like, It just comes up, it seems like, with every single portrayal of any form of Asian character in these westernized movies, especially when they're, like, not the main characters. I think it's completely different when you kind of bring it into, like, the main character perspective, but I'm I'm more referring to, like, the Freaky Friday style of character. So some notes I took of the movie were that, um, some things I noticed were that all of the Asian characters that you see in the movie work in the Chinese restaurant. Um, I think, like, pretty much everybody else in the movie, at least any character of of significance, is white. They're always wearing very traditional and stereotypical clothes, um, even when not at the restaurant. 
Um, and after searching for this online, one of the things I saw was that um, the daughter is very authoritative and aggressive when speaking to her mom, which is not something you would typically see between Chinese mothers and daughters because China is a society that, like, uh, adheres to like Confucianism where filial piety like family is very very important so you wouldn't really see especially in more like a traditional family which this movie is obviously trying to portray you wouldn't really see this dominance of the daughter over the mother so that I guess is another way like the family is kind of like it's not maybe a true representation of a Chinese family even in America it's definitely like a western influence on the family. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even on that end as well, there's just the fact that it's clear that the way this is portrayed, the grandmother is, you know, more tied to her Chinese roots, right? Like she, so to speak, she she's, doesn't speak English very well. She's clearly wanting to kind of practice this, you know, magic that, you know, is apparently close to her culture. Um, whereas the daughter she her english it's still a little bit broken because of Mm -hmm. course why would you have uh, an asian character that doesn't speak in broken english um that's a joke by the way yeah (laughs) but she she speaks english much better she seems to be more ingrained in kind of like the the western society and so you kind of get even this dynamic within that family that the the daughter needs to kind of rein in her mother's you know craziness and exoticized you know mm-hmm. nature and things like that by the way the daughter uh her name is Pepe. the actress who plays her doesn't speak like in real life with like a heavy chinese accent she's american so she's I, she either took it upon herself or maybe a director told her to like do a really chinese accent like broken english to make it more like authentic and other for the sake of the movie and I think you see that a lot especially with like Asian characters in western movies and tv shows oh my gosh you see that with everything Mm -hmm. like I have you guys seen the tv show Hollywood no okay 100% recommend such a good show um but in it it portrays it's kind of set uh, I think in the 50s I might be wrong on that but uh basically the there's this amazing actress she's a black woman trying to make it in the 1950s in hollywood and she really struggles because she's very well spoken um and very like eloquent etc and a really strong woman in her own right but then she's only given the role of like kind of the slave girl Mm -hmm. right or like the servant or the maid or you know whatever under that umbrella and so she's off, always told by these directors, like, oh, no, that sounded too nice. Like, you really got to, you mm. know, like, I'm not really feeling like, you know, you're getting this role and kind of things like that. And she was kind of like kept being pushed until she basically took on that whole like the stereotypical Southern help accent, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Um, and so I think like that's kind of the portrayal of like that's that seems to be what happens especially with like the traditional like let's throw this character in this role because you know stereotypes of course yeah we want to see like we want to see something simple we want to see what we expect to see so we like force people to fit into their stereotypes in in hollywood a lot Mm -hmm. i think yeah 
So as I mentioned before, um, I also noticed a fair bit of Orientalism in Harry Potter. Um, and so just talking about the portrayal of uh, women in Freaky Friday, like the Asian women in Freaky Friday, and just kind of how they were um, shown to be, it reminded me of um, how in Fantastic Beasts, um, one of the newer Harry Potter movies, there's this uh, development in the character of Nagini. Um, so for those that might not remember, Nagini is the name of uh, Voldemort's snake, who, spoiler alert, um, actually has a piece of Voldemort's soul in her. So in the end of the Harry Potter books, she actually has to be killed in order to defeat Lord Voldemort. Um, and so in Fantastic Beasts, which is a prequel to the Harry Potter series, um, we find out that Nagini is what is called a maledictus. She's a carrier of a blood curse that will ultimately will make her transform permanently into an animal. So um, J.K. Rowling says that... I haven't, I haven't seen this yet. Oh. So basically, does that mean that Harry Potter kills like a real person? Yeah, or oh. uh, ne- Neville kills... Right the snake it's been a very long time Spoiler. since i watched harry potter um, anyway point being yeah. that's like very intense yeah so um so nagini like the name of the snake comes from this uh this myth the the naga which um which jk rowling says is an indonesian mythology but apparently it's actually it comes originally from india um there's been debates on twitter about about that because of course jk rowling likes to uh, incite pretend- debates on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, and pretend she knows everything about other cultures that are not her own. Um, <laughs> but in this in this uh, myth, um, there uh, there are these um, creatures that are depicted as half human, half snake. And so this is uh, Nagini is kind of just uh, a progression of this, in which I guess um, this this woman um, who has certain characteristics of a snake will eventually um, become a full snake and uh, lose her humanness humanity i guess is the word um so there was a little bit of controversy just about the fact that the actor playing nagini is south korean and the fact that this uh this myth actually uh is more from india or potentially indonesia i i don't know the in and outs about um the histories of of this myth but that that was part of the debate but a larger part of the debate is the fact that this woman literally becomes the pet of a white man. Um, and so there's this really good article um, on Marie Claire uh, that was written by Megan Hills in 2018. And it's just, it's a really good article. You should read it. But I'll just pull some, some kind of key points from it. One of the things that uh, Hills says is that it's, it's not the fact that the character that was cast as Nagini as Asian is is the problem. It's the fact that um, diversity was attempted to be brought in in the film without really thinking too hard about it. Um, and like, what does it mean that like the only Asian woman in the film uh, essentially becomes Voldemort's slave, and um, she's mostly in in the books obviously because she's a snake. She's nonverbal um, unless. The person talking to her knows parcel mouth or parcel tongue. Hill talks about how that's a problematic stereotype about like Asians not being able to speak uh, in English and so coming across as nonverbal, um, and and especially like of... Asian women being submissive. 
to yeah. like western white men so like her whole plot point is to lose her personhood to mm-hmm. become submissive and like you like you said the pet of this white man Voldemort yeah and she just she just does Voldemort's bidding throughout the, throughout the books that's a lot of what you see about like girls and women how they're portrayed in anime so like they're supposed first of all everybody looks super young to the point of you know girls especially looking like little kids so there's obviously like a a huge problem I mean if you guys don't know a lot about anime there's a big problem with pedophilia in the in the industry and especially among its fans um girls and women act kawaii which means cute and they're supposed to be like shy and super feminine and it kind of just serves to reinforce this stereotypical ideal of Japanese women an ideal which like I think exists in Japanese society but I think something that a lot of men in the west are like eager to adopt like they want that ideal to be reinforced too especially if the women in question are submissive to them for their pleasure and consumption. Um, and so then there's also uh, the stereotype of of dragon ladies. So this is a Western trope of Asian women as being portrayed as over-sexualized and as deceitful villains um, in a position of power. Um, and so this is this is seen quite obviously in Nagini in that like she, like she is literally a snake. Um, and so yeah like it's not even a metaphor that is like that is what she is well and i think going off that um i think this goes back to this constant idea of exoticization um but part of the exoticization is not just like the over sexualization idealization of this but it's also the fact that you need to conquer it and tame it almost so not only like must you figure out this like mysterious dragon lady woman like you have to like kill the snake or you have to slay the evil person or you have to tame the wild woman and things like that and like that kind of language seems to be or like not even necessarily language but just like how that's portrayed seems to be pretty like widespread there i don't know i think it, it kind of goes back to like even with like puccini in the opera um part of portraying these characters like that is to help justify like colonial exploits of these areas right and Mm. you know we're not as obvious anymore um in that people don't say we're gonna do this to justify colonialism but you know it still happens right it's supposed to come off as like harmless um and maybe it does to people who aren't like affected by it but yeah well it's that whole celebration and representation versus exploitation argument all over again right yeah because now we just frame it in a oh well we're just celebrating the culture Mm-hmm. yeah okay can we talk about quirrell yes i have a lot to say about quirrell yeah so queerinius uh quirrell i believe is how you say that um we don't actually know his heritage i found on uh like a harry potter wiki that he is i think he's half muggle half of uh, half magical um, but in the movies, he's as, at least portrayed as being white. But um, so a little bit about Quirrell is he's a professor at Hogwarts. Um, he's he's quite like a timid professor. Um, he He's a defense against the dark arts professor. And he goes on a year long sabbatical where he is just like going on a world tour 
And after the sabbatical, he starts wearing a turban, which he apparently received from an African prince um, as compensation for getting rid of a zombie. So um, just even though we've been focusing on um, like Asian tropes a lot in this episode, uh, just a reminder that like Orientalism is basically like anything that is seen as Eastern. So that does include like Northern Africa. Um, and so and Middle sense, Eastern cultures. As yeah, well. yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And Middle Eastern cultures. So it's just like it, it kids like it. It incorporates like everything that is not considered quote unquote like Western. Um, and so while while he's out somewhere in the East, he discovers this uh, this remainder of Voldemort's soul. And he ends up um, helping Voldemort out. Um, and so we discover at the end of the, the first book that actually uh, the reason why he tr- like he's truly wearing this turban is because he actually has Voldemort's face on the back of his head. So he's hiding it there. Um, and so we find out that Quirrell is literally two-faced. And so this plays into this, this trope of... Um, there's this trope of the untruthful Oriental that lacks moral courage and so in this way like this character of Quirrell um he's he's tempted by by Voldemort and throughout throughout the whole book is is like lying to Harry and everybody around him and so a lot of this trope comes from the fact that like a lot of people didn't tend to trust western colonizers and so maybe didn't tell them all their cultural secrets and westerners tend to feel entitled to other people's cultures and so um, instead of just this being like, oh, they're just not telling us because we're exploiting all of their cultural secrets. It's, oh, no, all Orientals are untruthful. Um, and so that's kind of, that's kind of quarrel. But then um, there's this also, there's this, it goes into also uh, like gender n- norms and um, how often within this trope of Oriental men, there's often, um, this view of a different, a different form of masculinity that is that is negative, and so um, Quirrell is he is more more fragile, emotionally fragile. Um, he's also described with more delicate descriptions um, as like women would generally be described in the Harry Potter series. Um, but then this also extends to when Voldemort gets his body back later. These descriptions kind of carry on, and so um, this moves into like queerness as a trope for villainy but um in this case because like Quirrell went to the east and Voldemort was chilling out in the east for a while um there's this kind of association in Harry Potter of like the dark magic lurking in the east yeah and I think something that I really noticed as well is if you're gonna kind of more turn it towards the movie description um the character of Quirrell is played by a white British man and it kind of plays into this, like, as soon as he puts on a turban, he becomes evil and can't be mm. trusted. So it's it's that kind of association again with, like, turban is terrorist, which we all know to be completely false, and there's literally nothing founded. Like, there's no part of that that's, like, truthful whatsoever. But this was even, like, the book was written pre-9-11. I think, mm-hmm. did the movie come out pre-9-11 or after? It was around the I same know. time. It was around the same time. Yeah, but e- either way, right? Like, it's, it's this idea that, well, a white man puts on a turban and he immediately becomes a terrorist because that's, like, the Im- image that is portrayed in this, right? Yeah, it's like, a, like he has a turban. It's one of those examples where 
I think some people would say, well, that's not, that's not racist or like, that's not a bad association towards people who wear turbans. That's just, you know, he's, he's, he's involved with Voldemort and he happens to be wearing a turban. But like, just the fact that that associate, that association is there, like he wears a turban and he also has something to hide and he's been involved with dark magic. And also, at the same time, we as a society in the West are very fearful of people who tend to, like, you know, cover their heads and faces because we associate it with bad things like terrorism. So it's just this this association that even if it's not purposefully racist, you can't, like, I, I would consider it so. Okay, so should we now maybe talk a little bit about Mulan? Because I think that is a very interesting perspective because obviously the first iteration of Mulan um there's some problematic stuff in it uh but we're actually going to focus on the more recent movie that came out just last year I think last summer yeah yeah 2020 because Disney said you know like we're gonna try to do this right we're gonna be better people um but yeah I don't know maybe maybe one of you wants to wants to tell us uh that it's a bit more complicated than that I remember when the trailer first came out, Jacqueline, you came to me and you're like, Rachel, there's a new, there's a new Mulan trailer. I don't know, like, I don't know, maybe I told you that I really liked Mulan or something, because I love that movie. I think it's great. Um, And I was super excited for the movie, and I still haven't seen the 2021 yet, partly (laughs) because I've heard it sucks, and I watched this breakdown of it on YouTube, and it does look like it sucks, but... So maybe we should say that none of us have actually seen this movie yet. Yeah, we should definitely Just like that. a disclaimer, we're going off of, like, discussions about it. Um, maybe we should do a, a Disney party, watch party. Listeners, mm-hmm. if you'd be interested in that, maybe we'll put a poll on our Instagram and see if anybody would be interested in doing, like, a, a Mulan watch party. Yeah, come watch Mulan with us. Yeah. So for the newer Mulan movie, the way that I was thinking about it and the way that I thought it was, like, portrayed was... Um, Disney was hoping to have it be, like, an authentic portrayal of Chinese characters and culture, but, um, when I was looking it up, all I was seeing was, like, well, apparently Chinese audiences were really criticizing a lot of aspects of it, like, it seems, like, to be a specifically Western view of what China is like, and apparently other Chinese viewers were saying, like, the character's makeup is very Western, um, or, like, it seems like it's a stereotype of, like, Chinese makeup rather than being, like, a reflection of actual Chinese culture. And if you look into it, the uh, production team was white as well, including the director. And when she, I think her name is Nikki Caro, I think that's how you say it, when she faced some criticism for this, like, you know, a white director, um, directing a movie about a Chinese woman, Chinese culture, she was like, although it's a critically important Chinese story and it's set in Chinese culture and history, there's another culture at play here, which is the culture of Disney, and that the director, whoever they were, needed to be able to handle both, and here I am to save you all. She didn't say that last bit, that was me adding that in. (laughs) Yeah, um, because I'm sure that there are no Chinese directors willing to work with Disney. Oh, yeah, absolutely. None of them out there. But I think the problem here lies in the fact that at its core, Disney is as close to a white culture as you can get. 
You know, like they say white people don't have culture, but we have Disney. We have Disney. (laughs) (laughs) And like, can't take that away from us. (laughs) But no, like, as facetious as we're being, like, Disney is pretty ingrained in like white identity. Um, You know, they've tried a little bit over the past few years to introduce more like diverse characters. They've tried to do things like um, The Lion King and Mulan and things like that, where they're working, you know, with more authentic cultural perspectives but at its core it's still serving a white audience and you can tell that it seems like they're not really looking to kind of gain a non-white audience they're just looking to provide diversity for their white audience yeah so it's in their eyes I guess it's fine for them if they like put in that token amount of effort to try to keep it authentic but then you know if something slipped by or if we, you know, don't actually consult Chinese people about Chinese culture, then it's fine. Our, our audiences won't notice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have we all seen the older Mulan movie, the 1998 one? Yes, I have, yeah. Which it's funny because we also say that that's older, but it's only from 98. Yeah. That's not really that old. I guess that's weird to say, the old, the old one. Yeah, like when did Freaky Friday come out? Does that mean we're old? We are, yes. What um, year were you guys born? 95. 94. 96. Aw. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, so we've all seen the Mulan 1998 version. Um, and I really like that movie. I thought it's great. I like its message. Um, I like the characters, the songs. I love the songs. Um, oh, the songs are so good. So good. I sometimes just listen to them on their own without, like, watching the movie. As you should. Yeah, exactly. Um... But then, uh, apparently, it wasn't super well-received by Chinese audiences. It did have quite a small audience because the Chinese government apparently was trying to, like, shelter the moviegoers from, like, foreign competition. So, this is kind of, like, a very small amount of people who saw it. But those who did see it, um, apparently, the, the Xinhua agency described her as Mulan as uh, foreign-looking in her Disney incarnation, and she, they said her mannerisms were too different from the Mulan of Chinese folklore for their Chinese viewers to recognize. Um, apparently, moviegoers would call her Yang Mulan, which means foreign Mulan, and they said, like, her character doesn't exhibit the same depth of filial piety, like we were talking about earlier, like, importance of family, as her literary predecessor, uh, one person said she's too individualistic. They then said Americans don't know enough about Chinese culture, which is true. Apparently, like, even when we're trying to get it right, um, we're getting it wrong. Which is fair. I mean, I don't think the expectation there is for white people to fully get Asian or Chinese culture. I think the, the thing there is to know when to step back and say... yeah hey, how about you do this movie? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's impossible for, like, especially corporations to, like, expect, uh, to expect corporations like Disney to be perfect, but... But you also shouldn't, um, take other people's folklore and treat it as if it's something that you can put your stamp on. Um, so, yeah, while they shouldn't, we can't expect them to be perfect, we can, we can expect them to just let other people's cultures be other people's cultures and let them tell their folklores. Yeah, and I think it's very fair for, like, at this point in the world, Disney is a global company. 
Mm-hmm. But then I'm sure that there's an office in China that could yeah. have managed the entire movie, period, start to end. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they would have been it. excited to like be given the funding to tell this bespoke tale that's theirs yeah you know one of the things i found really interesting about the 1998 mulan movie is this um feminist storyline in it so mulan is trying to kind of break out of her traditional patriarchal society and show that women can be like strong soldiers too basically women can be like men too um and that apparently wasn't like um that wasn't a part of the original Chinese folklore. That was something that Disney decided to put in probably to like appeal to Western audiences more who were, you know, after um, second wave feminism and the introduction of third wave feminism, like really more into seeing strong female leads who, I mean, I think in the original folklore, uh, Mulan wasn't, you know, not strong, but she was more, Uh, interested in upkeeping traditional values like filial piety and honoring her ancestors like stuff that I think Disney may have thought was too foreign for their western audiences but I think would be cool to see anyway well I feel like before we should go uh, it's important to acknowledge once again that none of us are experts on this Um, we just wanted to kind of chat about things that we have noticed and hope that there's ways for both us and you know disney especially to grow as people or corporations <laughs> these days corporations are people on twitter they talk like people at least that's true and they have the protections of being a person what do you mean they have like more protections it, than being a person in the states right yeah Not anyway that's a whole other anyway <laughs> yeah but no thank you for listening if you have anything to add uh again we're not experts so please we'd love to chat more about this um it's also important to note that we are all white westerners so uh if you have another story to tell we'd love to hear it we love to learn we'd love to hear from our audience if they have specific thoughts about this yeah slide into our dms slide into them please (laughs) right now i'm winking (laughs) (laughs) and finger guns (laughs) and finger guns